Hi, my name is Jahan uh, Nujaim. I am a filmmaker and I was the director of The Great Hack and the director of uh, The Vow, The Square, um, Control Room, um, a number of films, um, many of which I made with my partner, Kareem. Hi, my name is Kareem Amir. I'm uh, also director of The Great Hack. Uh, so as a producer, and um, I um, also produced the square with uh, Jahan and uh, directed the vow, um, among other films. Who has seen an advertisement that has convinced you that your microphone is listening to your conversations? All of your interactions, your credit card swipes, web searches, locations, likes, they're all collected in real time into a trillion dollar a year industry. The real game changer was Cambridge Analytica. They'd worked for the Trump campaign and for the Brexit campaign. They started using information warfare. Cambridge Analytica claimed to have 5,000 data points on every American voter. I started tracking down all these Cambridge Analytica ex-employees. Someone else that you should be calling to the committee is Brittany Kaiser. Brittany Kaiser, once a key player inside Cambridge Analytica, casting herself as a whistleblower. The reason why Google and Facebook are the most powerful companies in the world is because last year data surpassed oil in value. Data is the most valuable asset on Earth. We targeted those whose minds we thought we could change until they saw the world the way we wanted them to. I do know that their targeting tool was considered a weapon. There is a possibility that the American public had been experimented on. This is becoming a criminal matter. When people see the extent of the surveillance, I think they're going to be shocked. And I still fear for your life. Yeah. With the powerful people that are involved. But I can't keep quiet just because it'll make powerful people I, I, mad. Data rights should be considered just fundamental rights. This is about the integrity of our democracy. These platforms which were created to connect us have now been weaponized. It's impossible to know what is what. Because nothing is what it seems. That is the trailer for the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack. And this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a production company that makes documentaries about America for international audiences. Today, we're talking about the impact of big tech on elections and other events that shape our lives. Helping us to learn more about this and the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data scandal are award-winning directors, Kareem Amer and Jehan Nujem. Did I get that right? That's correct. All right. Excellent. Uh, welcome, Kareem and Jehan. Uh, welcome to Factual America. Um, how are things with you in upstate New York? Uh, we're, we're great. Thank you. We've, um, we're currently living uh, outside of Woodstock. Um, we have three little kids, so it's, very, it's actually a blessing in disguise that they're getting more used to nature and ah. being outside a lot more in New York. You know, it's a little bit difficult to give them access to that less screen time hopefully. yes <laughs> how old are your kids out of curiosity 
We have uh, four-year-old twins and a five-year-old uh, daughter. Four-year-old twin boys and a five-year-old daughter. Oh my God, you guys are busy. <laughs> how, do you, how do you find time to make films? When we began The Great Hack, we had no kids. So that gives you an idea of how long <laughs> <laughs> make film, uh, you know, which maybe we shouldn't be advertising, but these 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 projects take uh, take quite a lot out of you and take quite a lot of time to really yeah. know what it is that you're trying to um, say and whether what you're trying to say can be seen in a mm. movie uh, or should just be a book, like most mm. things. Kareem's probably sporting his uh, public school. Uh, it's our kids' school. Okay, excellent. Yeah, well, wow. Well, when there was school, right it's now it's a, my only clean it's all rem- it's all remote. But um, uh, definitely, these all these projects are always always come from a personal place. And having kids, I think, really got me thinking. Or, or you know, being somebody who was about to have kids when we started the Great Hack, really, I was thinking about kids growing up with screens everywhere constant mm. manipulation and how are you how do you raise kids in a world where you just can't dis- they can't disappear um the the you know i my favorite times um that i think back of as a child are in the woods with absolutely no devices and sort of um no pictures of that time and so it's it was just a, it was we've lost the ability to disappear and we were kind of looking at that and looking at the um, you know, at, at, at tech and the ability of tech mm-hmm. to manipulate. And um, same with why we started The Vow, actually, was, you know, somebody had, had lost their daughter um, to mm-hmm. a cult and we were looking and we had just had a daughter. So I think that it, these stories, um, co- you know, really uh, resonate with us when they have a personal mm-hmm. element to them and what yeah. we want to think about, what we want to ask questions about. I think these are things all parents are struggling with. I have, I have children and and teenagers now, um, and talk about screen time and and the struggles. Um, but even the little ones are uh, it's it's you know it's a different uh, it's a different generation, as you say. Um, the the main one of the main films we're going to be talking about is the the Great Hack uh, came out in 2019 uh, Netflix. Um, so thank you again for coming on. It's been, um, I've, as you've already alluded to, quite a busy, busy year, uh, released in 2019. I guess you've probably been a lot of questions too about the film in the run up to uh, uh, the 2020 election. You've got this, these other projects, The Vow. Um, but for those listeners of ours who uh, haven't had a chance to uh, see, see the film, um, um, Kareem, maybe, uh, maybe give us a synopsis of what uh, The Great Hack is all about. What is the great hack about? That's, uh, well, hmm. it's a loaded question. It is a loaded question. I'd say, uh, I, I, I think that, you know, let's start with what, what I hope, um, what I hope it's, 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 it can, it can, it can provide for us when we look back. Mm. And I think that from there we can maybe figure out what it's about. Right? It's very hard for a filmmaker, I think, to really describe what their film's about because there's uh, depends which day of the of the year you catch them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I think to me, it's like the film is about uh, it, it, it's it's trying to capture this moment in time in history where we realized and felt 
this existential feeling that so many people in the world were feeling where felt like, wait, there's something that is kind of predicting my behavior and mm-hmm. is trying to shape my behavior in a way that I understand and don't fully understand. And that something has also been politicized um, in a way that is unlike any other political experience we've lived through thus far. And I think that kind of really, that moment uh, of, of, of kind of awareness is what the great hack really captured. You know, it's this time when we realize that our data is this footprint that we leave behind in ways that we don't really understand and in ways we've not really been informed about in ways we may not have fully, fully consented to. And that that data is being used in, enti- in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very complex uh, industry uh, to predict our behavior and try to shape it. And that hmm. I think the, the conflict is really about how we've real- we come to this realization that in this new era where data are traded for services in such a way, that everything's been commoditized of our human behavior uh, and including our political views. Mm-hmm. And I think the question that, that Great Hack, I hope, leaves people with is, what does an open society look like and what is a democracy, how does a democracy function when our behavior and our political behavior has been set so commoditized to such a degree? I think that's really what the, what the film captures. Now, we use the... The, the kind of the story of the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal as the kind of plot, so to speak, yeah. to house these questions. And that all comes about because we have these, you know, great characters who give us access into their lives and provide a gateway for us to take these complicated ideas and philosophical questions that some of which I just voiced and personalize them into an experience that, that is vulnerable, emotional, and relatable to, to an audience. And, and what, what struck me was, uh, so how did you, get, you guys get on the case so early? Because it's not like you're just looking back. I mean, this thing, this story is unfolding. This, this scandal is unfolding right in, f- in front of our eyes on camera. Um, and uh, so how did... You know, I guess the story broke in, what, 2017, although some of us were hearing about Cambridge Analytica before that, taking credit for getting Trump elected. But, uh, but you know, some of the st- allegations and things that were coming out, that was more 2017. So how did you get on the story so early and um, actually um, get these characters you, you mentioned, um, get them on camera? Well, I mean, I think we... Um how did we start? Well, you know, we, we had made a film called The Square, which was right. out the uh, Arab Spring mm-hmm. through the lens of Tahrir Square and the events that occurred there, also through characters. Um, and, and in that film, we had witnessed technology play a part, which was quite interesting, because here was technology being, you know, uh, being heralded as the galvanizing uh, tool or instrument for democratic processes, right? Facebook was the you know, method by which people could gather and organize and Twitter gave everybody all the voiceless a voice uh, mm-hmm. and became a method of accountability, of abuse of power. And it was a magical moment in time when, when, when we felt like, wow, here are these tools that have come from the gods of Silicon Valley 
and have allowed for, um, you know, democracy, civil discourse, all these values that we love to blossom. Um, and the story kind of, you know, a lot of the world attention kind of left there. And, and I remember coming to the United States and seeing how um, Silicon Valley was so excited about, you know, the Arab Spring mm-hmm. um, and took a lot of credit for it. And then the pendulum swung the other way. <laughs> and we saw these same tools being used first by autoc- you know, uh, um, autocratic regimes that are authoritarian and, and, and yeah. to go after dissidents. And then we saw these you know, same tools being used by ISIS to radicalize people. And so all of a sudden it was like, wait, the tools aren't inherently democratic. It's about how they're used. You know, the, this is, could be a tool or a weapon. Depends whose hands it's in. And there was no accountability, though, from, you know, the technology companies about the record sites that were left behind by some of these technologies being mishandled. And so we quickly, I think, had an awareness that the pendulum of technology swings. It's not just inherently positive. Mm. And when it swings in the other direction, it actually has a lot of externality costs onto society that we don't quite understand or, 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 or may not be taking notice to. And the reason why we're not taking notice to them is because oftentimes they're quite invisible, right? How do you tell a crime story without having a crime scene, right? And yeah. so that was kind of like where we had started to, to begin this process. And we were interested in the space of hacking and, and, and how uh, the space of hacking was actually more about uh, information warfare mm. than, than it was about just like, you know, blocking people access into their office building or just, you know, breaking physical damaging, uh, physical damage of, 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 of locations. But, um, and, you know, we had been exploring that space. We began a film in that space that had nothing to do with Cambridge Analytica in 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. 15, maybe 20, I um, And then the challenge of making a film about technology is that just as you're figuring out the language for it, um, the story moves, right? Because there's a lag between mm. the speed of technology and our ability to kind of make sense of it, even regulate it, for example, right? Like, uh, so... There's a real deficit of language. So there's both a deficit of language and then mm-hmm. deficit of visuals to, exactly. you know, where where is the melting, um, you know, the, the, the melting snow or, uh, and the, you know, the ice caps melting? Where is that... Yeah. strong image to show that we're leaking, you know, data everywhere we go and that we're, you know, we're, we're leaving these footprints and those footprints are being commoditized. And so, and, and ultimately controlling us and where does free will fit into all of this? So ultimately we were fascinated with the idea of how technology was really hacking the human mind. I mean, obviously we're, we've been obsessed with this idea of hacking the human mind. It's just in, in the great hack, it's through technology and through in the vow, it's through a charismatic leader. Um, but it's a basically about that. It's, the, it's how do you film that? How do you, and we realized that we wanted to find characters that were very much in the center of this story and trying to figure it out for themselves. And, and that's really verite filmmaking. I, I studied with, uh, I made my first films with D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges, and it's, yeah. you know, how do you tell a, a, a story that is a story that a 
affects us all. It's kind of a, you have to find a microcosm of that story and you have to find the characters who are compelling characters who are going to take you emotionally through that journey. And in the process, you learn. Um, so we began looking for those characters. Exactly. Um, and, then, and then what we found, um, you know, was that every time we find an interesting thread or story in, it was people describing incredible stuff, but you couldn't really see any of it. And, mm. you know, film is a visual medium. It's like, and, and as filmmakers, we're always like, why is this a movie? Like, how is this, how is this story earned that it's a movie that we know how to make? And again, as to Jahan's point, it's like, we don't make films about topics. You know, um, mm. there's, plenty, there's a lot of filmmakers who do, and, and, and I commend them, but that's not our, our method. You know, our method is a character on a journey that we can follow mm. that, you know, that can personify an aspect of a story. But no character can ever, you know, personify an entire topic, right? That like there's no, Square is not a film about the entire Arab Spring or even the Egyptian Revolution. It's just about three people's experience through it, right? That, that's mm. the only truth that we know really how to do with our, with our process. And so... While we were mapping this space, we were like, well, we could make, there's like there a series we could make here. I mean, there's so many stories, you know, like whether yeah. it was Guccifer or whether it was, you know, the, 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 what was going on with the, with misinformation and seeing how, um, you know, the, for, for a bit we had looked at the stories of, um, uh, what's it called? The, um, the, the pizza parlor. Um, oh, the, um, the yeah, yeah, we were up, we were up in all that space. Basically, yeah. we were there before most, and we had we actually interviewed a lot of these people. Looking for wreckage sites. Looking for what we called wreckage sites, but we were like, where are the wreckage sites where we could feel, where we could see the clash between technology and society, and really, and really find it. And so these wreckage sites were what we looked for, and then who were characters that could take us through? Um, and you know, in our opinion, the biggest wreckage site at that time was 2016 election. Uh, and I think that the, you know, seeing that and Brexit together was just like, wait, here are two of the most unpredictable outcomes of the year of modern political history, some would argue, right? Uh, and they both happen. And then wait, there's one company that worked on both. Like, that's kind of weird. And wait, this company happens to be a military contractor that happens to be playing in the game of, you know, the hearts and minds. And wait. This company, like you know, uh, you know, like learned how to do this on British and American taxpayer money, uh, playing in our part of the world, the Middle East, you know, uh, mm. where they were doing psyops. Okay, cool. Wow, interesting. Okay, so they, so a psyops company was hired, and they're like, okay, it looks like the hens have come home to roost, right? And coming well, from the Well, and a hundred and, and, and they had been involved 100, in 165 elections yeah, all over the world. In our, yeah, in 130 countries, something crazy like that. And we're a little bit like, as people who come from a country that's been colonized, Egypt, we were thinking, is this the new form of colonization? Exactly. Through data. And so that's kind of where it went. And then when we met Carol Codwaller, it was like, you know, meeting an old friend, you know, I mean, we just like hit it off immediately. And it was, all, you know, we met, we met in, we, we actually met in the train station, <laughs> you know, like, you know, in a good John LeCare fashion. Um, <laughs> it was quite, uh, you know, I was, I came to London just to meet with her. 
Yeah. And told her what we were doing. And she was like, wow, you guys seem really ahead of this curve. She hadn't published the article yet but about, about, um, about Wiley. Okay. One piece. Um, and what Carol had done in her piece, even though she wasn't the first to write about Cambridge, she was the first to really tell, you know, Hannes uh, Gransinger had been the first one to write about the Cambridge Analytical Story in a Das Magazine article that then became um, a motherboard. And it was a big article. It came out in December. Um, and then Carol wrote in the following year a piece in the, in the Observer Guardian where she really made the linkage of like trying to see like, wait, this is not a national problem. This is a transatlantic story. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, because of her, you know, brilliance and in, in, in the way that she writes narrative through her journalism as well, you were able to see that this was a much more complicated thing because, and, and to make it more clear is actually what Carol kind of provided, I think was, this idea that to understand Trump, we had to understand Brexit. And to understand Brexit, we had to understand Trump. And that these were two kind of stories that were interlinked. And that that inter- and understanding why would a group of financiers support both? And wait, is this the new way that politics is being played? Where we have shadow, shadow money, you know, dark money coming into different elections it's not even from the countries trying to affect the outcomes uh, and using data analytics and using Facebook, which we had all signed up for and like we had our baby pictures on to all of a sudden, you know, micro target the shit out of particular people with things that would drive them crazy uh, and rile the shit out of them to get them to have a very emotional uh, state and affect their political lenient. And, and that it wasn't about, and that elections were no longer about speaking to an entire uh, group of people. You know, it wasn't one, 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 one leader tells one nation a story. It was one leader tells every single voter the story that they want to hear and that only they see, and that that is all that matters. And that the leader doesn't even have to be consistent because they can just send a message to each person individually um, and not even be called out for saying completely opposing messages because all these ads disappear on Facebook and Facebook feels it has no obligation to hold them, preserve them or tell anybody who paid for it or anything. And all of this is happening because we accepted that these guys, these tech guy gods wear hoodies like this and that they must be nice guys. You look at them, they're harmless, right? So that was kind of, what what was going on you know and then uh, sorry i kind of skipped ahead but back to the train station as you can see this is why these films are made by really good editors who can who can, can edit you who can edit <laughs> into a linear and just a cogent thing and not yeah. just fly all over the place yeah. yeah but back to the train station uh carol and i hit it off we had a kind of like show me your cards, I'll show you mine. And then she's like, well, if you can stay a little longer, there's someone you should meet. And I was like, I can stay longer. (laughs) And I changed my my flight. And then later that day, she took me to meet Chris Wiley. And then she had more cards to show. She had a lot more cards to show. I I just had a lot of (laughs) interesting ideas. She she had the cards. She had the goods. And Wiley and that, you know, was a mind blowing conversation. And he hadn't come forward yet. And he didn't have pink hair at the time. 
Okay. Some nice Lebanese takeout and uh, talked in London about everything for several hours. Mm. And I left that meeting and I was both terrified and shocked and in awe of what I heard. Um, And I was like, okay, we've, this is a, this is a movie. This is a movie. Like there is something. We found a movie. We found a movie. That's, that's, that's because what you're looking for as a filmmaker is like, okay, I want to say this stuff, but I need a, I need a, a plot and, a, and mm. characters and a, and, a, and a canvas that provides that. And what Cambridge, that Cambridge Analytica gave it, I mean, it was like, you know, filmmaker's dream. You have these characters like Alexander Nix. I mean, he's out of mm. central casting from James right. Bond. I mean, you can't make this shit up, right? I yeah. mean, it's like, yeah. they have all these people that are just like, unbelievable and then it's so they so we were moving to london we were moving our entire family to london and then chris wiley ghosts us and we're oh. he just won't he just won't respond and um we had you know we were making gonna be making this film with him and the rest of it and then um a, a friend of ours um jess uh, calls us and is and says, I have somebody else that I want. Well, and then, so we moved on for a little bit. We were like, well, you know what? Because this is, had happened to us before. We we're like, you need someone, yeah. that, you know, who's in the de- you know, in these nooks and crannies of the web that yeah. few people navigate and they want to tell you this great story. And then you're like, okay, let's do it. And then they're like, oops, sorry, changed my mind, deleted my number. And I can't speak to anybody. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. So this is the second time this happened. We're like, okay, this is crazy, you know? And people were terrified, and he was terrified. Yeah. And so, mind you, I mean, this is like right after Trump had won 2016, right? Steve Bannon, his former boss, is, you know, running the White House basically. And he's got this story that completely indicts Bannon and, 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 and shows mm. a very different side of the game that nobody had understood. And, uh, but it's, and so that was kind of the insider part of it. And so we kind of moved beyond Cambridge a little bit for, uh, for a beat. And um, we were looking, you know, we, we had been filming with David Carroll. Okay. was a fascinating character at the time because it was like, you know, while Wiley had given us like inside information as to what was happening, David Carroll was an, was an everyday citizen who was like, do I asking a question? Do I have a right to know what data was collected on me and how my data was used against me potentially? And that seems like a pretty simple question. Yet it it didn't have a simple answer because that question was, it challenged the, 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 the power dynamics that existed at the time of what was the legal responsibility of data collection, data harvesting, your right to know who owns your data, is it your property, is it not? All of these things hadn't been actually resolved. Uh, and the European interpretation was very different than the American interpretation, right? So, um, and Who owns my, I found, basically David had found out I have, there's 5,000 data points on me. And so who actually owns that information? And I, you know, I, it should be me that owns it. So then he goes to um, Ravi, who's a, Nick, who's a, a, solicitor. a solicitor in London, and he decides that he's going to pursue a case against Cambridge Analytica. But we still were having, you know, uh, 
you know, boyfriend breakup issues because, you know, Chris Wiley had ghosted us and, uh, and we weren't, and we weren't, weren't sure how to make the film. we weren't sure exactly how to make the film because we make films following people on a journey. Exactly. And so we had yeah. David who was following, who was really following the story. And then we get this call from Jess Search, who's another wonderful friend, filmmaker, um, British friend of ours, who says that she wants to introduce us to somebody um, who is about to meet Brittany Kaiser and has been in communication with Brittany Kaiser. We didn't even know her name yet. Brittany Kaiser wasn't her name. There's someone else who's former Cambridge. So that's how you, is that how you got, I mean, I guess you got in touch with Paul Hilder, is that right? And that's how you tracked her down to Thailand. Yes. So, so she introduces us. us to Paul. Yeah. Um, and then I get a call. I'm in Egypt at the time. I get a call from Kareem saying, listen, Chris Wiley's nothing. He wasn't even around when the whole uh, <laughs> Trump, the Trump contract was signed. Exactly. A year and a half before Trump was even in the picture. Yeah, exactly. That comes out in your film, though. But yes, it's... Uh, he couldn't speak to what happened during the election. Yes. And he set up a rival company as well. To, 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 yeah, and, and pitch to the Trump people as well, from what I understand. But that's, that's, let's not go down that tangent. But, uh, um, so he says to me, there's this girl and this woman. Her name is, uh, uh, well, we didn't know her name know, yet. First it was Paul. So we met Paul Hilder. Right. Um, and I met Paul... In um, yeah, I met Paul, and then we ch- we chatted briefly. He was uh, I was on my way to London, and he had he had just arrived in New York, and we like we met actually in an Uber, and I he dropped me at the airport. We had a meeting in the Uber. He drops me at JFK, and then I took off, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this. And he basically told me this crazy story about this woman that he'd been communicating with for a while over LinkedIn and then gradually developed this conversation with her and that she had a lot of information and she was really pissed off about how the media had kind of gotten the story wrong and was finally ready to talk. Uh, But the caveat was, could I be in Thailand uh, in 48 hours to this remote island uh, off the coast that she was kind of hanging out at and i was like okay maybe so, so I you get, do it i get this call basically kareem is supposed to come back for the holidays in egypt and uh you know supposed to see his mother who he hasn't seen for a long time his mother calls me up and is like he's still upset that he lost this chris wiley character that's why he's flying to i don't know where to meet this person are you sure she's legitimate and I said, I have no idea, but we're going to have a conversation with her. We talk with her on the phone, um, on Signal, and she says to us, um, look, I have four days of sort of quiet time before I'm about to come out with my story and speak to all of these New York, New York Times journalists and other journalists. And so if you want to meet me, you really have to come here now. I can't tell you exactly where I am, but land at this airport, and then I'll tell you where to go. <laughs> So I said, Kareem, that's going to be your job. Um, <laughs> so this is La Carre. I mean, this is Bond. It's like you even have that scene where you're on the boat going out to the, you know, from the island. It's, it looks like straight out of a Bond film. I mean, that we, actually we, is we James Bond Island. Yes. It is actually is it? shot 
We couldn't resist. We couldn't resist putting these. I mean, what what an incredible place to meet somebody who's about yeah. to reveal all of this information. So mm. Kareem uh, meet goes there, meets meets her, and we weren't sure, you know, with characters like this, they'd been coming and disappearing, and so she says uh, she starts telling him. Um, uh, this information about what she's been involved with and this start, the conversation started in the pool. So like a good verite filmmaker, he said, pull out the camera. And that's the first, uh, the first interview that we do is Brittany is in the pool. And, uh, and, and that's, that starts our, our incredible journey with her. And here was somebody who had been, uh, you know, worked for the Obama administration, had been, mm. um, you know, worked on the Facebook page, then joined, uh, you know, and then moved to London and then had worked for Cambridge Analytica. Um, well, she, she, you know, what she had was she had the arc of the swing of technology. Yes. Right? So you mm. could see she was at the birth of Facebook being used with Obama and yes we can and all of that and then she had been there when it swung you know to you know eight years later to be used in a very different way and be more weaponized as a as a method of 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 actually suppressing uh you know people's encouragement to to vote um Mm -hmm. and so she'd seen both and she'd gone from being someone who was uh you know quite progressive and quite supportive of these you know democratic uh, or, or the values that the Democratic Party s- subscribes to more so, uh, and then she'd swung in the other direction. And so I think that she showed this, she, you know, in her persona, how the conflict mm. and the trajectory. And, and she had firsthand information about, you know, she pitched Trump campaign, she wrote the contract, she was there at the, at the whole thing. So, and now she was kind of wanting to course correct and, 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 tell the world what really went on okay um hold that thought i want to give our listeners a quick break and then we'll be uh right back with uh kareem and jaheen you're listening to factual america subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on facebook instagram or twitter at alamo pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows check out the show notes to learn more about the program our guests and the team behind the production now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with uh, Kareem Amer and Jaheen Nujaim, directors and producers of The Great Hack. Netflix, uh, as New York Times says, a film about how your data became a commodity. Uh, we were talking about Brittany Kaiser, who uh, uh, in true cinema verite tradition, I think it's going to go, you know, she's quite a character, isn't she? I mean, um, that it's not what I expected. You know, I, I'm not sure what I expected when I sat down to watch this film, but then it quickly became more and, and you, you I think you're true to your Pennebaker roots and, and that whatnot. Just seeing this uh, very uh, interesting person in the pool with their gla- sunglasses on talking to you about this in the, in the middle of, you know, this James Bond Island, as you said, uh, in Thailand. Uh, but she's quite a, um, I mean, she was only in her 20s when she was writing these contracts, wasn't she? Yep. Yeah. That's right. I mean... Well, the whole movie starts with Burning Man, which gives you... Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Of the, the characters involved. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, so, I mean, yeah, she's... 
it's 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 really interesting i mean how uh, i mean as this was all because you obviously this is all unfolding in front of you um i mean you know what were you thinking or uh, did you know you were going to find what you found when as things were as the cameras were rolling you know i think what a good character provides you in a story like this is that you don't know exactly what they're going to do next but they're on a, and they don't fully know what they're going to do next like that there is an aspect it's unpredictable um and i think the the challenge of making the challenge and the and and, and i also the part of it that uh, that i actually quite enjoy of this kind of filmmaking is that you're on a ride you know and if you can find a way to tether with that person and and, 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 and create that space of mutual trust, then you can go on that ride together and create a space for an audience to, um, to be a part of it as well. And I think that that provides you with a way to just, you know, um, enjoy the ride. And, and I think that ride sometimes will take you on places that you don't like because life is messy. You know, it's, it's, yeah. you're watching something unfold, but you're not with Brittany reflecting 10 years later about what she didn't, did or didn't want to do. She hasn't, she doesn't have perfectly groomed remarks that have been, that she's process, she's processing in real time, mm. right? And I think what we wanted to provide people with was, yes, of course, we want to um, talk about all these interesting ideas, but, you know, when we peel back the veneer of the political moment, it's, here's a, a young woman who is stepping out and taking a big step and knows that she's going to be attacked by everybody. Yeah. She's going to be attacked by her former employer who thinks that she's betrayed them. She's going to be attacked by the liberals who think she betrayed them by working in the first place. She's going to be attacked by it. So she got it from every direction, yet she knew this is what she had to do. Mm. Um, and she did it. And, you know, Brittany's gotten a lot of different... Um, you know, she's, she's been criticized by, by, by some um, and, and, and heralded a whistleblower by others. But I think that it's important to remember that to this day, only two people came forward in a meaningful way that are former members of Cambridge Analytica and gave evidence and, and testified in both Congress and Parliament. That's Chris Wiley and Brittany Kaiser. There are hundreds of people who work there. Only two stepped forward. So... Mm. I always tell people who want to criticize Brittany, you know, until you've stepped in those shoes of what it means to be a whistleblower, be careful how you judge those who are doing that work. Okay. Um, I think that's a very good point. I mean, and also this point you made about life's messy. This whole story's messy, isn't it? I mean, this whole, and as we've, even this year, we've found out with some findings that, I mean, really... I mean, it seems to me, as you say, you've captured a political, I think you've captured a lot of the theater around a political moment, in my own opinion. Uh, and I've also think, you know, it, it turns out that uh, this, um, um, you know, this uh, Alexander Nix and all of them were just a, really a bunch of blowhards, weren't they? Just exaggerating uh, their abilities and what they had done, at least in particular with regards to the... Uh, um, you know, maybe the Trump campaign. And um, it, I don't know, do you want to say anything about that? Because it, it just seems to me what, what, what all comes out, I mean, what's coming out of all this is that 
it gets back to a point you were making about each one of us having our own sort of individual, our own sort of newspaper news media that goes thrown in front of our eyes. And we're becoming so and so, so much polarized that, um, you know, I think it's hard for the average person to know what is really going on these days and what is truth and what isn't. I absolutely agree. We're in a post-truth era and I think it's one of the scariest, uh, uh, problems that we're facing. Um, I mean, we grew up with this in Egypt where um, people watched lies being told on television by the by state media, um, where uh, conspiracy theories were taken as fact. And to see this happening and so people are not able to have a conversation about real facts, real truths, and watching this country, which we've always felt safe and watching this country go through this um, is, 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 is very concerning. Yeah. And so, I mean, um, I think there's been some other docs that have come out recently about social media um, and uh, forget about people trying to hack or, or send us uh, um political messages i mean that's part of these you know these algorithms anyway that they're if they don't you know if they don't have enough of our attention they're going to send us something that's going to try to get our attention if we haven't been on a um on for a while or um you know i think i mean coming out of this what is your view uh about big tech the tech giants the facebook's the twitters um and others of the world you know, I think that um, big tech has to ask itself what they want their legacy to be in this world. You know, because I, I, I really think that that's all that's really going to motivate them at this point because you have a few companies that are really controlled by a few individuals, you know, who can really make major decisions. And I think what worries me is that they have oftentimes been unable to um, to take responsibility for the wreckage sites caused by their platforms and companies. You know, I think it's like, you know, it's very much to me like the oil companies that we, we saw 20th century defined by oil. In the Middle East, we saw the consequence of that mm-hmm. firsthand. I mean, our lives, in many ways, one of the reasons we're sitting here right now, I could draw you a line that points to oil and tell you how it shaped my entire story of an identity to today, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you have a commodity that is the most valuable commodity in the world, it affects the entire world. And if data has surpassed oil as the most, most you know, uh, important resource in the world, we can expect that at least what happened with oil will happen on the data front. Yet, because, as Jahan was saying, we don't have these images of, you know, the spilling of the oil onto the pole. You know, we don't have the image of the penguin soaked with oil uh, or the melting Mm. ice caps like we had with the the consequences of the environment that we saw from oil. Uh, Big tech has oftentimes gotten off scot-free because... There is, you know, uh, people are unwilling to accept mm. that there is something that can really be influencing them. 
you know, because that goes against our inherent Western identity of free will, that mm. I am in control of my decisions. I'm not a persuadable. Those people are persuadable. No one tells me what to do. No one tells me what to think. Well, no one tells you what to think, then the entire business model of advertising wouldn't exist, mm. which happens to be the main business model that Facebook and Google control, right? I mean, they are in the business of predictive analytics, of predicting your behavior and selling that on the auction floor to anybody who wants it. And that isn't inherently an evil thing. But when it's left unchecked, when it's left unregulated, when it's left at this idea that somehow they're just going to do the right thing, that's just preposterous. I mean, like, it's just, it's just like, it goes against every tradition that we have learned, especially in the United States, about how to hold and help shape you know, major titans of power in a direction that does not completely obliterate our social contract. Mm. Um, And I think that if the new social contract today, I would argue, is the user agreement, then we need a new reclamation of that process to occur Mm. where citizens, government, and the tech companies can agree on what are the parameters of this relationship? What are we okay giving up? Do we have any control of it? Is my personal relationship data just like my likes of what articles I like, just like where my baby, like, is it all one fair game thing? Or can I set some gauges of Mm. I'm okay with this being available and I'm not okay with this being available? I want to know that when I'm being targeted by a political ad, who paid for it? And I want to have clarity and I want to know when this is paid news or real news. Uh, These are all things that we deserve. And the idea that, you know, um, that we could just wait for big tech to do the right thing really troubles me because I haven't seen them do that thus far and I don't think they have the incentive structures to do so. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, 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 the clearing call as well in this film and, and films that have come since, you know, and I think that we, mm. we took that on first in a big way and we're excited to see that now other filmmakers are coming in and trying to tell that story in different ways because I think there's many stories here. You know, yeah. there, there's yeah. like I think we, because of our work, gravitate to the intersection of zeitgeist and, and politics and, and society. And you know, yeah. but that doesn't speak to everybody, right? For some people, a personal story about you know uh, bullying as a result of this may be far more impactful to getting them to understanding or. The Social Dilemma, which is more of a kind of anthropological topic story, yeah. but it's not really about characters, right? Um, and that's, that is extremely successful for a conversation. But I think it's, it's many conversations because this isn't yeah. a story. This, what we're talking about isn't some kind of thing happening over there. This is about every single person who has a smartphone on our planet is part of this conversation. Yeah. This is about the basic fundamental system of truth and the validity of truth. Mm-hmm. And if you fragment that, right, our systems fall apart. You know, uh, even the, you know, from democracy to the even functionality of the internet, right? Like the, 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 the basis of the internet comes from a, a certification of validity between, you know, this page that I'm typing in is actually this page. If all of that starts to be balkanized, which is what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how our open society survives. 
And I think what the big tech companies should ask themselves is what responsibility do they have to the open society? Would they exist without these ideals that, we, that, we, that, that came to us after you know, the world burned itself to the stake in two great wars? We came out of those two great worlds with these ideals, an imperfect system of the United Nations, sure, but it's something. And it, it, these ideals are supposed to be things that we subscribe to. And would Silicon Valley be the refuge of, of the world's engineers? if those ideals weren't preserved or weren't helpful, would they have been able to create these companies if these ideals didn't get? So I challenge them and say, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of, of, of these ideals and of, of these ideas, yet you should see no responsibility to preserve them uh, because your business model doesn't force you to. And, you know, your investors are making money, so who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and one last, I mean, yes, and it's, I think the big thing is it's, it's people just don't even understand the technology or everything that's behind this with these PhD in physics are designing. And uh, I think it's almost comical. You see these hearings with the senators and they're asking the most basic questions that, you know, all you have to do is Google and you can find the answers. I mean, they don't really, I think we, most of us, I'll put my hands up, don't really understand exactly what they are doing in many ways. Um, but look, I'm conscious we don't have much time with you. Um, you need you need to get onto a. I think you have uh, another call. Um, you mentioned uh, so. Thank you so much for coming on. I really have enjoyed this, and wish we we had more time. We'll have to get you back on if you're okay with that. Um, with one of your other projects. More questions. That's fine. What's that? If you have more questions, we can continue later. Um, well, I'm going to have to. Uh, because of the time difference, I'm going to have to get, uh, and the studio rental, uh, I will have to uh, be going. But what I would say is, if you don't mind, we'd love to have you on another time. Just if you could quickly say, I think you made a really interesting point because I did catch, I've, this is the only body of work of yours I've seen, but uh, it's just doing the research and there does, there is a, there is something that's, that's a strand that runs through it all. And you were talking about hacking the mind. So do you want to talk a little, just quickly, tell us about something that you have out now on HBO. It's the, the vow. Um, if, if just so our listeners can, can maybe yeah. go look for that. Um, both Kareem and I have been over the past years obsessed with the idea of hacking the mind. Um, and I think uh, we you saw that in our work with The Great Hack. Um, and what's out right now that we worked on for several years um, is called The Vow. Um, and The Vow was very much about um, people that uh, – believed in change, dared to dream, went to a self-help organization, believing they could change their lives. Um, and, uh, and then many of them got involved in what the media has called uh, a sex cult. Um, the leader of the cult uh, is Keith Raniere, who has just been sentenced to 120 years in prison. Um, but we make verite films, so we followed this process um, of the whistleblowers that came out and took the organization down. Um, and uh, we followed them over a number of years as they, um, you know, as they, as they tried to make sense of what this experience was. Um, and we're uh, headed for a part two, um, okay. which will show sort of the other perspective um, and a number of other different players in the story, because I think if you want to understand 
a real system of indoctrination or a system of of belief where where you're where an idea comes before everything else in your life you need to understand that system from multiple angles and it's really exciting when you get a project where both the the the, the theme of the project um, coincides with what you would like to do creatively. And we've always wanted to make a kind of Rashomon type project where you're able to see the same problem from a number of different angles. And in this case, it's crucial to see this situation from a number of different angles in order to understand the entire system. I think it gets at a, an issue that, you know, th- that we all really need to talk about in our society, which is, We've now been working with whistleblowers from a number of different places. We mm. worked with Bernie Kaiser. We worked with Mark Vicente, Bonnie Pease, Sarah Edmondson in The Vow. And I think that what's been very difficult to see is how the media has treated those whistleblowers. Mm. When they come out, they are continually, they, in both cases, they are the few people to come out to speak um, about what what has been happening, even though that process of speaking can be deeply personal, deeply embarrassing, shameful, and I believe as a society we need to do everything that we can to support them. Um, I'm watching as Mark Vicente, for example, is being attacked online because mm-hmm. he was a part of uh, Nexium, but really he was the first person to go to the uh, FBI and to say there's something that's going on here. Brittany Kaiser was somebody who was attacked in the media after she came out because people said, well, weren't you involved in this or weren't you involved in that? And absolutely, people should be coming forward and talking about their experience. But nobody that becomes a whistleblower comes from a situation where it's like the the Girl Scouts, you know? I mean, it's... it's, they come from complicated situations. And I feel like this is something that we really need to look at because there, there does need to be more support, I think, in our culture and in the media of people that dare to come out and talk about situations um, and not be trashed when they come out and, and speak. And- I'm, glad, I'm glad you've said that because that has been a common theme in some of the docs that we've had on this podcast, uh, where whistleblowers in all kinds of walks of life and industries have been really pilloried. Um, we even have a, I have a, a friend actually, I was doing a, uh, Tim part podcast on something very related to what you're doing with the vow, I would say is related. Uh, it's just come out in the last week or so for ra- radio four. So you can hear it on the BBC side. It's called the orgasm cult, but it's about, uh, a wellness outfit that was quite well known. But the point reason yeah. I bring that up investigated by the FBI right now. Yeah, she's under the, yeah, exactly. The FBI is on the case. And um this 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 uh, friend of mine um and she's uh you know I've only listened to the first episode but she's had to say several times these aren't the real identities, these are not the real voices. They're all afraid to say anything. Most of the people that are were that were employees of this uh wellness company. Yeah, no, it's you know and I think the question we have to ask ourselves especially in these very charged political times is how do we how do we believe that we are true um, 
custodians of an open society and all these ideals that we like to believe that we subscribe to, if we're not providing spaces for societal redemption, right? If we're not, if we're, if we're, if we have this brazen attitude of casting away anybody who has ever changed political beliefs or has been involved in something and is now saying, I'm sorry that I was involved. If we continue that, then we're not creating any space for people to ever speak out against true power and justice that is happening continually in our society. And I think that it's a very dangerous space we're entering into where we're, we're eradicating the space for those who we need to come forward to be able to come forward because they're kind of, you know, damned if they do and damned if they don't. And I think that that's a really, uh, it, 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 it's a problem that's getting more acute. And I think that as, as, as filmmakers who, you know, inhabit these spaces, it's a conversation that, 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 that should be had uh, more effectively. Uh, because I think, to me at least, I don't think we get through some of these world crises that face us moving forward without really embracing radical empathy. Mm. And I don't think as liberals, we can really compete with the conservative agenda um, if we're not able to display that. You know, um, Conservatives always seem to eat our lunch and have the, the born-again space where anybody can kind of resurrect themselves and we don't really have anything uh like that and i think that we you know um if you look at any of the whistleblowers that have come out in meaningful ways the the amount of attack on them is just unbelievable it's almost like it's become a competitive fun thing to do you know in our new digital square it's like the new public mm -hmm. square let's go there and throw some tomatoes at this person just because we can why not I, I just don't think that that achieves much. Um, and, yeah. and, I, and I think that it's, you know, placating to it is quite uh, unproductive. All right. Well, uh, congratulations on that. And we look, f uh, look forward to seeing it. As you said, it's on HBO in the States. We think it's on Sky here in the UK and we have listeners around the world. So uh, just do a search for it and find, find where you can stream it. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, Thank Kareem and Jaheen so much for uh, coming on to the Factual America podcast. It's been a pleasure having you and chatting with you for these uh, last uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, directors and producers of The Great Hack, which is the main film we've been discussing uh, this this uh, today. And uh, give a shout out to This Is Distorted Studios in Leeds, England. Please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. And this is Factual America signing off you've been listening to factual america this podcast is produced by almo pictures specializing in documentaries television and shorts about the usa for international audiences head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode our guests and the team behind the podcast subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at alamo pictures be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.